Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Are you looking to invest in farmland? Farmland LP is one of the largest investment funds in the U.S., focusing on converting conventional farmland to sustainable organic land. They have a portfolio of more than 16,000 organic and sustainably farmed acres, and their goal is simple, to produce attractive returns for investors while benefiting the environment. Since 2009, Farmland LP has combined decades of farming experience with modern technologies seeking to generate competitive, risk-adjusted investment returns while supporting soil health, biodiversity, and water quality on every acre. And Farmland LP adheres to certified organic standards, giving investors confidence in their sustainable investing goals. In today's world of high inflation, volatile markets, and uncertainty, consider joining investors, including large institutional investors like Bill Gates and other family offices, and add farmland to your investing portfolio. To learn more about Farmland LP's latest offering, click on the farmlandlp.com link on my podcast show notes or email ir at farmlandlp.com and tell them you heard about it on the Meb Faber Show. Take this opportunity to invest in a sustainable future. What's up, everybody? We've got a fun episode today. Our returning guest is Dr. Gio Valiente, who is regarded as one of the most successful performance coaches in the world. He's currently the head performance coach for the Buffalo Bills and works with some of the top golfers and investors in the world. He was previously the head performance coach for Point72 and Steve Cohen. Today's episode, Dr. Gio starts by sharing the five ways to win on the field or in the market. Then he shares the parallels of top performers in both athletics and investing. He walks through ways to help handle failure, navigate fear, detach yourself from your results. This is truly a masterclass on what peak performance looks like, so be sure to share this episode with a friend. And if you enjoyed the episode, check out the link in the show notes for Dr. Gio's first appearance on the podcast. Please enjoy this episode with Dr. Gio Valiante. Gio, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Meb. I'm glad to be back. Where do we find you today? Uh, today I am in uh, St. Petersburg Beach, Florida. You look like you're ready for summer, man. Growing a beard. What's uh, what's the story? Well, surf camp last week with the kids. We had a we had a week of surf camp over in Cocoa Beach, where where the famous surfer uh, Kelly Slater um, sort of was born and raised. And so I went to surf camp with my kids, and you know, you get into that beach vibe, and you're like, yeah, I haven't shaved shaved all week, and we'll just we'll just keep it rolling. Well, you'd be right at home here in our Southern California lifestyle and company. We went surfing over the holidays and my wife, she, she's like a, not a cold water surfer. She doesn't surf in Los Angeles, but in Costa Rica, she's certainly happy to surf. But she took a board to the face. You know, she's like, is this stitches? I was like, well, like Costa Rica stitches maybe, but not LA stitches. She was fine. But the takeaway is she now snores incessantly so i don't know if it's a deviated septum or what but ever since and hasn't surfed either since so we also have surf camp coming up here in la this summer so i'm excited about it but last time we had you on we had a lot of fun we talked a lot about sports we got the open here in la this week at lacc which i may drag my six-year-old out to 
But today, you know, you've spent probably a good part of your career talking a lot about our world uh, and thinking about psychology and the parallels between sports and investing. So I figured maybe maybe we would spend a little more time there today. Why don't I hand you the mic and, and start to see what your thoughts are since we last had you on? Well, it's interesting, and I'm just pulling this up right now. One of the one of the things that think about you know having transitioned from golf you know to the hedge fund world you know when Steve Cohen sort of pulled me out of golf in two thousand and it was two thousand and fourteen, and I was ready to sort of step away from golf a little bit anyway, just because all the travel on the PGA Tour and it was it was a bit of a grind. So the timing was great, and. He, when you have a framework to work with athletes and then you sort of transition into working with, with investors, you're applying a type of psychology, but, but just simple pattern recognition starts to show up and you start comping people. And so one of the things I would think about in golf, you know, I've got 50 wins on the PGA Tour with a variety of different golfers. But when you look at the profile of the golfers that I coach, they're all really different. And so the, the, the way that I would look at a golfer, evaluate a golfer, like, how do we get this guy to win? So I think about, for example, there's five ways to win in golf. And there's five ways to win, for example, in, I think in the hedge fund world where I, I spend a lot of time. So think of it this way, or I think of it this way. Number one is talent. In golf, I think of Rory McIlroy. He's got the same golf swing now that he had when he was six years old. It's a very natural golf swing. It's arguably, you know, some people are saying it's the best golf swing in the history of the game. In fact, Tiger Woods last week when he was coaching his son, Charlie, Think of this. Think of how uh, enormous this statement is. Tiger Woods said to his son, don't copy my swing. Copy Rory's swing. That's Tiger Woods. Arguably, has the, you know, built the best golf swing of all time, looks at Rory McIlroy's swing and said, that's, that's the swing I want my son to copy, right? And so Rory McIlroy is you know, the most talented golfer of his generation. And the comp in, 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 in financial markets, are there people who are just smarter, like just, just natural investors, right? They have an uncanny ability. You know, Steve Cohen's made money for 45 straight years. And everyone who's ever sat next to Steve on the row tells the same story. I was talking to a guy last week uh, at a different firm who worked with Steve 20 years ago. And, and everyone tells the same story. Like you watch Steve trade and it's a, just a remarkable thing to watch. He's just got this knack and pattern recognition, right? And so ability matters, you know, and so in golf, it's, it's talent, you know, proprial perception, fine motor skills, a combination of things that aggregate into what we just call talent. And in the markets, it's intelligence, but it's more than intelligence. What is intelligence? Is it memory? Is it pattern recognition? Is it self-awareness? Is it, there's a lot of things that go into this concept of intelligence. And so it begs the question, if you don't have it, if you're not the smartest or the most talented, well, how do you win? Right? So, Okay. Well, the next level down is work ethic. If I'm not more talented than Rory McIlroy, then I'm going to have to outwork him. I, I don't have what Steve Cohen has. So the way that, that investors compensate, it's like I'm just, I'm just going to work harder, right? I'm going to outwork everyone else. And that's a way to close the gap between the smartest and most talented people, okay? Well, there's, there's a point of diminishing returns on, on work because at a certain point, sleep deprivation compromises your ability to make good decisions, right? So... What happens, what you see on the PGA Tour and in the markets is if you look at the driving range on the PGA Tour, everyone has a resume. Like, oh, that guy was college national champion. That guy's a U.S. amateur champion. That guy was the mid-am. Every one of these guys is is amazing, was the best golfer in high school, the best golfer in college. And they all have this puritanical work ethic, right? 
And it's the same on Wall Street. Wall Street, everyone's got a resume. Everyone went to University of Virginia or Ivy League, went to Wharton, went to Penn. Um, they're all smart and they all work hard, right? And so it begs the question, if you take that sample, right? So all super talented people who work really, really hard and you lay them on a distribution. Well, then, then where's the advantage, right? Everyone's smart on Wall Street and everyone works really, really hard, right? So you've got talent, you've got work ethic, well, the third way to compete and, and to try to try to win, uh, and, and this is how I would evaluate golfers, is differentiation. You just have a differentiated perspective. You see the game differently. You use college football coaches as an example. If you look at three of the best coaches of all time, Steve Spurrier, Nick Saban, and Urban Meyer. Steve Spurrier sees football as a game of space. And so he would coach his quarterback and receivers just throw the ball into space and let the receiver go to that space so he just he sees the game a little bit differently by his own admission steve spurrier was not a hard worker he didn't want to stay up all night watching film he's just but everyone also says he's also a genius right so differentiation nick saban does not see football as a game of space he sees it as as essentially a talent it, it's sort of recruiting and, and sort of a game of talent so he's got the deepest files on every player in the country starting when they're like 12 years old and so he just recruits the best people right so one scene steve spurrier sees it as a game of space nick saban sees it as a game of just talent competition for talent and urban meyer sees it as a game of speed it's just a, it's just a race so the way urban meyer would recruit players you have to run whether you're an offensive lineman defensive lineman linebacker everyone has to be a runner and he just recruits speed. So three different ways, three different philosophies of coaching college football, all three super successful, national championships, SEC championships, right? So a differentiated perspective can work. I look up at the night sky and I see the Big Dipper and Van Gogh saw Starry Night. We're looking at the same thing, but it's a differentiated view of the same thing, right? So the ways to win are talent, work ethic, differentiation. So let's say that, that those things are all sort of, um, sort of marginalized, right? Everyone's got that, right? So then what's the next level uh, way to get an advantage? Talk about, be religious about process, discipline, right? In other words, if you're not the smartest and you're a hard worker, but not the hardest worker, and you're a little bit differentiated, but essentially you're conventional, well, the way that I can win then is I'm gonna be absolutely religious about process and discipline and routine wash, rinse, repeat every day, because that's going to minimize error, right? The four ways, and this is true, again, this is travels between golf and, and investing. And then the fifth way is, is if you're not great at any of those things, well, but you're great with people, you're a great evaluator of talent, you're great managers, you hire people to compensate for those things, right? In other words, you hire the smartest differentiated figure and, and you just coach people to compensate for your weaknesses. And so it, it's been a remarkable journey to, to work at the highest level of golf and watch how those guys compete and, and, and where they find their advantages. And now 10 years uh, working largely in the hedge fund and finance in general, largely in the hedge fund industry. And you start to see that the tail end of the curve looks the same across both sports. Mediocrity looks the same and excellence looks the same. It's, it's just remarkable that you can comp, you know, there's, there's a, a particular uh, portfolio manager. I won't, I won't say his name, but he's just one of the best investors I've ever met. But it's natural. He has you know, naturally good recall, and he knows every company and every management team he's ever invested in. It's effortless for him. And everyone who's worked with him says that about him. He's just a born natural investor. 
and that's the equivalent comps to Rory McIlroy. And then you just you start going down the pecking order, and you're like, oh, you know, th- there are parallels across sports and, and structurally. When we talk about personality and profiling, it's the same people. And I, one one other note on that: I remember I was spending time with a guy named Jordan Spieth out in Texas. Went out to Dallas, spent spent two days with Jordan Spieth, uh, and he was working on a particular part of his game. And then I flew back to and then I flew up to Buffalo spend time with a guy named Sean McDermott, who's the head coach of the Buffalo Bills. And for Buffalo, I flew to Westchester, spent time with Steve Cohen. So it was like a three-day sequence of Jordan Spieth, Sean McDermott, Steve Cohen. And I'm on a walk with Steve around the building. And I remember thinking, this is the same conversation I just had. Like, like this incredible football coach who's turned around the Buffalo Bills, coach of the year, Jordan Spieth, generational talent golfer, Steve Cohen, you know, legendary investor. They're all working on the same kind of problems, different domains, but like it's the same. And so at the tail end of the distribution, excellence has, has a bit of a profile. There's a couple of different ways we could go there um, from here. You know, I was thinking as you were talking and we spent a lot of time thinking about the sort of tails of a distribution. Once you're out on that sort of far end and, you know, I don't know, there's... 50 golfers that are 100 that are usually competing at these tournaments and you're getting into that like final like levels of of mastery what is the one that most of them um of those struggle with it's built into the developmental trajectory of excellence like success is never up and to the right right the, the reality is the trajectory if, if you if you sort of do a deep dive into the sort of the the history of sports and you think of Johnny Unitas and Joe Montana and Tom Brady and, and, um, and Kobe and, and Michael Jordan, you know, people, people think that you know, Jack Nicholas, um, that these people never struggled, that it was just, they just showed up and won all the time. And it's, it's just not true. Kelly Slater, the surfer, right. Bodie, uh, Bodie Miller, the slalom skier. Right. And so what happens is in aggregate, these guys build this, this, pro for the, 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 this record, this body of work that stands the test of time. But the path to it is wrought with a lot of failure. And so like therein lies the, 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 the lesson. So one of the, one of the flaws of the human mind is it likes to think in binary terms, either or, confident or not confident, good or bad, you know, success and failure. But, but what is known, and this, is, this travels across domains, is Failure and success are not inversely related. They're not, they're not binary. You know, it's not like failure is here and success is here. And the further away from failure, the closer to get to success. People like to think of it that way. In reality, failure is woven into the fabric of success. You know, I was working with this wakeboarder once, this kid named Phil Sovin, who was the, at the time best wakeboarder in the world. And he said something really interesting to me. It's the same thing that David Duval said to me about, about snow skiing. One of the things that made Philip Sovin the best wakeboarder in the world was that he never got injured when he fell. In other words, he knew how to fall. And that's what you know about great skiers. Great skiers, everyone falls. But if you don't know how to fall without getting injured, you're not going to do it very long, particularly when you're pushing the envelopes. You have to learn how. One of the things that's foundational for both investors and athletes and the conversations I have with, with a lot of these people is you have to learn how to fail because if you're afraid to fail, all of a sudden you're, you know, it's, it's the psychological equivalent of the prevent defense in football. You're playing to not lose. So you're afraid to fail. 
And that automatically puts a governor on how good you'll ever be, right? In other words, if, if you're spending your life trying to avoid failure, trying to not fail, again, the psychological equivalent of prevent defense in football, you're never going to take the appropriate amount of risks and you're never going to have psychological freedom because what happens is one of the things we know about fear, two things we know about fear. Number one, it's universal. It's one of the universalities of the human condition. Like unless, unless you have some sort of brain structure that, you know, you don't feel fear, which some people have that condition. But for most of the population, the, their brain has circuitry. It's hardwired in. And so when we talk about the markets being driven by fear and greed. It's more fear than greed because fear is the most powerful of all emotions. So fear is universal. We're hardwired for it, but it also is distorted. It distorts our ability to see things accurately. In golf, I would hold the line and say, make fearless swings at precise targets, right? That's what fearless golf is, is you're making fearless swings at precise targets. And if you just hold that, and then and essentially what I would tell my golfers is, this is not a horse race. It's not one golfer versus the other. It's a dart game. It's you against the golf course, not against other golfers, right? Because the variability of other players you can't control. So it's just fearless swings at precise targets. What's my target? The equivalent in investing, and, and I'd, I'd love to hear what you think about this. An investor should always deploy capital proportional to the opportunity in the market in the moment. So if you just write that line, deploy capital, exactly proportional to the opportunity in the market in the moment. Now, why is that an absolute statement, in my opinion? Because if you think of all the drivers of the reasons why people invest or why they you know, deploy capital into the markets, more often than not, it has nothing to do with the opportunity. It's, hey, I'm in a draw, I need to make money. Or try to make money the same way you lost on a particular company. Or your analyst you know, is pressuring you to put his ideas in the books. Like the level of irrationality, even for sophisticated investors. So what I'm always doing is auditing my guy's thinking and, and say, okay, are you deploying capital exactly to proportional to the opportunity you see in the market? Like for example, right now, low vol. There's not a lot of volatility in the market. The VIX is low. And so a lot of guys are flat. And so now is the time where people start trying to force P&L. But if there's no money to be made and you start imposing your needs on the market, well, that's when big losses come, right? And so going back to the idea of fear, fear distorts our ability to see opportunities as they are. What it does is we see it increases threat level. So we see danger. Whereas, you, you know, when you're confident, you see the market as a, as, as a place of opportunity, right? A place of abundance. You can look at that exact same market and see it as a place of threat and danger. And that's what fear does. So we come in off the risk curve. We start pitching consensus ideas. We start overtrading and this cascading effect. So you asked, you know, the initial question was, you know, what, what do you see at the tail end of the curve? You see people who know what to do with failure, who know how to manage fear, and who have a process in place so they don't make decisions that are governed by fear. Man, that's so great. There's two parts of that that I think we could spend a little time on or expand into. I'm not sure which one I want to go to. Um, you know, we'll start with this concept of fear and failure. You know, and, and as I think about it, you know, when you think about the actual failure part, you miss a shot, you make a bad trade, whatever it may be, you know, the fear of really what's associated with it is kind of what people struggle with is that I'm going to be embarrassed. I'm going to feel shame. People are going to think that I'm not the greatest anymore. I'm going to not make as much money. So my spouse or 
potential mates are not going to be as attracted to me. My sense of self-worth is wrapped up in this job. I may get fired or traded, yada, yada. We did a fun chart the other day where, you know, early in my career in the social media world, when you put yourself out there, of course, in investing, but the same is true of sports. Like, obviously, you got to deal with the haters and the terrible comments. And it used to bother me. And I have a lot of friends where uh, I see them, you know, posting on Twitter, oh my God, this can't believe this person said this. This is so hurtful. I don't want to be on Twitter anymore. And the the thing that we tell people, it's like the athlete who puts the, you know, the article, newspaper article on their uh, locker, right? And the ones that use it as motivation. What we tell people to do on the investing side is say, uh, and this is for the public persona, but you could do it two ways with the trades. One is when you get the haters, just take it, copy it and put it into a Google Doc and it like file it away. And so we've been doing this for like 10 years now. And in the early days, it's like I felt the very real like, oh, I'm embarrassed. Someone thinks I'm a terrible investor, like on and on. Then we started throwing them in there. And some of them were like pretty hateful and like mean and spirited and, and awful and on and on. Now, looking back on them, often I like chuckle and like smile, but also so we put up a, a tweet the other day that had all these comments over the last 10 years because we just had a 10 year anniversary and then, and then like, uh, you know, our progress over the years and something about taking it and putting it into the document, sort of like the front page thing on the newspaper, it places it in a different mental compartment for me. And I don't know if that's true for someone else. It takes it from being like a personal attack that's really hurtful to something where it's like more motivational but, and we talked on this briefly last time, but this concept of failing in our world is, uh, you know, my favorite quote being, every trade makes you richer or wiser, but never both. So the same concept of, you know, not wanting to learn from the failures or not wanting to fail because it's a painful process, but rather actually learn from them, realize they're inevitable. Yeah, there's a, a bit of genius in what you just said. Um you know, psychology has done a lot of research around this. And when you start, you know, people talk about fear. I remember when I first started doing psychological studies about golf and I was interviewing all these PGA Tour golfers, structured interview, same 12 questions to every guy. And it was amazing to me how frequently fear came up because at the time, no one was talking about fear in golf. And it's like, fear, this isn't boxing. You're not going to get punched by Mike Tyson. It's not football. You're not going to get tackled by Lawrence Taylor. It's like, what are you afraid of? It's golf. And the and so when I, I wrote that first book, it was called Fearless Goth. I wrote that book for a very small audience. It was the book was probably supposed to sell a couple thousand copies. It was not meant to be sort of a a big deal. It ended up in seven languages all over the world, which surprised everyone, the publisher, me. But it, what happened was what struck people was the idea that uh, of fear, right? So called fearless golf. And people started seeing themselves in it. But one of the fundamental questions I asked that led to the books, like, what are you afraid of? Like, if you're afraid, you're not physical, nothing physical is going to happen to you. Probably not going to hit by lightning. It was fear of being judged by other people. It was fear of embarrassment, essentially. Humiliation. It's exactly what you talked to or, or spoke to. And what happens is, so humiliation just when you just think of the word humiliation is we talk about about psychological pain the only thing more painful than feeling humiliated is like grieving the death of a of, of a loved one right grief grief is a very very biologically governed powerful emotional emotion takes over 
Other than that, it's humiliation. It's embarrassment. And what happens is there's there's a sort of a, a it's like a switch in the brain. I want you to think of it almost like pulling a fire alarm. Is that when people feel the threat of embarrassment, like if I fail at this thing, it's humiliating. What happens in the brain is this switch trick the, the flips, and it starts just like a uh, you pull a fire alarm. A sequence of events starts to happen in the brain. So like a fire alarm, like the electricity gets cut off, uh, an alarm sends to the fire department, sprinklers come on, like there's a series of events. In the brain, what happens is when, when the threat of humiliation comes into play, your body starts getting, getting flooded with these stress hormones, uh, hormones, cortisol, epinephrine, norepinephrine, perception shifts, like, like your pupils dilate. So the golfer who's like playing scared because he's embarrassed, all of a sudden, the fairway starts to narrow. The hole looks smaller. To the basketball player, the hoop looks smaller. To the investor, you don't see any opportunities. All you see is danger, right? Perception. So there's a chemical change in the body. Perception shifts. You start seeing threat instead of opportunity. And just the secret, you know, the butterflies in the stomach. And it's like a throw switch in the brain. So the fact that you elevated that into this dialogue, that you're having conversations about what to do with people's judgments of you and and you have a way to manage it because in the absence of having a mental toolbox which you have for how to deal with the potential humiliation or judgment of others you can't be good at anything you can't be good at literally anything in life if you're walk going through life and your driving concern is what are people going to think of me if i fail you have to have a, a mechanism or a method for dealing with that and, and, and the one thing i'll say about that in chapter two of Fearless Golf, the first book I wrote, there's this really beautiful uh, area of psychology it's called achievement goals. And it's not like goal setting. Goal setting is answers the question, what do I want to achieve? Achievement goals actually ask the question, why do you do what you do? Why are you an investor? Why are you a golfer? Why are you a school teacher? What, what, why do you do what you do? And what the research shows is if you ask thousands of people this question, it tends to cluster into two camps. The first camp is what's called a mastery orientation. I do this every day because I want to master my craft. It's like I'm intrinsically motivated. I love learning. I love the challenge. I love everything about skiing or surfing or whatever. Like, I'm in it. I'm in it for, for these reasons. The other camp is called an ego orientation. And when you're driven by an ego orientation, the motivation, the reason why you do what you do has nothing to do with the craft or the task itself. It's you're doing it for image management, to impress other people, to beat other people. It's not about golf. It's about showing people how good I am at golf. I remember I had a Hollywood director come spend a day with me one time. I'll never forget this. He flew to Florida, sort of a big deal out in Hollywood, and but he loved golf. Like a lot of people, you know, they fall in love with golf. It captivates them, and they get addicted to it. He said, the problem is, you know, I could be with all these movie stars and da 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 and I'm, I'm never self-conscious. He goes, but this game is in my head. I'm, I can't play and so we went out to the golf, we spent a couple hours, we went out to the golf course, and he takes a ball out of his bag and puts it on the tee. I go, what, what kind of ball is that? Doesn't look like a title list, doesn't look like a Bridget. He goes, oh, no. I go, what does it say on it? It's, he goes, oh, he goes, it's what I write on all my balls. I go, what is it? He goes, it's fig jam. I go, what's fig jam? Fuck, I'm good, just ask me. And... I thought, oh, I think I know what your problem is. We can go. We don't have to even play golf. Let's go back to let's go back to the office. And I was a professor at the time at Rollins College. He was so clearly driven by an ego orientation. He just wanted people to recognize that he's good. And when you start playing golf or doing because you want 
the 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 accolades and praise and, and wrecking of other people, well, that by definition brings embarrassment into play, and you can't do these things if you're a f- with, with a fear of humiliation. So what led to that was the reason why he was playing for the wrong reasons. Investors who who go into investing just to make a lot of money, you're never going to be a great investor. You better love the game. You better love drugs. You better love solving hard problems. You better love learning about yourself. It can't be only about the money. You'll never be great at it. So for someone like this golfer, um, let's say, or an investor, let's say they recognize this problem. They say, look, I'm not handling failure well. I realize I may have this ego attachment, but but I really want to work to get to a mastery mindset, to get to where I'm making this trade, I'm getting ready to stand over this ball to where I'm, I realize that I have this mindset that I want to change. Like where, where do those people begin? Where does Fig Jam go? Like what's the right acronym for that guy to get into his head? Like what's the approach next where you say, okay, we got to shift. Like, is it possible to shift from, yeah. hey, I, I'm, I am an ego guy. I want to focus on mastery. How do I then make that transition? Because then like you've made the first step, which is, all right, acknowledge this. Get me out of this uh, rut. Yeah, no, you're using exactly the right language. It's a psychological shift. You know what's interesting is most of the time people get into it for the right reasons. People get into investing, they get into you know golfing, into surfing uh, for the right reasons because they love it. Like it's a great game, and investing's fun, and markets are fascinating. But what happens is once so you get into it for the right reasons, which makes you pretty good at it. Then you get good at it, and you start getting recognition. And that's when the shift happens is when, is when you start getting praise. I'll give a quick example. I was at a college golf tournament once um, outside of Atlanta up in Georgia. And there's this young golfer at this, at this club. And, and I was at the, at the snack bar getting some food. And this woman comes over to this kid. He's about maybe, maybe called him 12 years old. And she said, oh, you know, Billy, read about you in the newspaper. You're doing so well. You're making everyone at the club so proud. We talk about you all the time. And he was very polite. And he said, oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. And he had ordered a hot dog. And she said, oh, no, no, no. I'll get that, dear. Put that on, on my tab. Put that on my number. And you can almost see this thing happening in the kid's brain where he got great at golf because he's out there playing until sunset every day because he loves it. But all of a sudden now it's like, wait, you're saying if I play good golf, I get free hot dogs? If I play good golf, people like me more? And this is what happens to college athletes and especially professional athletes. And the equivalent investors is, you know, you're great at, at investing, you're into it, start making a lot of money. Well, then you, you buy a nice house. Well, then you buy a nice car. Then you buy a house in the Hamptons. And all of a sudden you build this life and it puts pressure on the purity of the act of making good decisions because now you got to pay for a life. So now it's not really about the investing. It's not about decision making. It's not about getting better at your craft. It's about you know, it's just making sure imposing your needs on the market. So the psychological shift that happens, it's really common, but it's also possible to shift back. You have, you, you coach people, you, you teach them what mastery is, you teach them what ego is, and then how to react. Because when you're mastery oriented, you don't feel embarrassment. Like when you're doing something for love of the craft, because it's not about other people, it's not about their approval, right? It's 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 Howard Rourke, you know, and and and, and Anne Rand, you know, standing over the granite quarry, right? It's like I don't. I don't, I'm not an architect. I don't build buildings. I don't care if you like them or not. There's nothing to do with you. You know, I remember the character, I think it was Ellsworth too. He said, you know, Howard Rourke in, in, in the book, like, tell me the truth. What do you think of me? And Rourke's answer was great. It's like, I don't, <laughs> I don't think of you because it's not about you. It's about the building. 
It's about the craft. It's about the it's about the, 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 the art of the craft. One of the things we hear a lot in my world, um, and, and, and and I imagine at some point there's just some people that will never care. Like they're just like you're you're you may have been in it for this fun and mastery, but then you got attached to status games and all these other things and they're just too addicted to it. They'll never go back. Do you see that happen? Like, is that like, you're like, actually look like you don't seem to really want to change. You don't seem to really want this path. It's unsolvable. Like, is there, are there just people like that? Is it kind of, or is there no one, no one geo can't save in this? <laughs> no, no, no. And and that's, what's interesting is, is you, if you're ego oriented, that can work. Right. But there's one, criteria you have to be arrogant and that's why athletes sometimes have entourages because they lose their confidence if you're ego oriented and you're doing it for the accolades and the praise well what you're gonna do is you're gonna surround yourself with people who are gonna keep giving you that praise and so you know you can be ego oriented but you better never get a ding in your confidence because once that happens you fall apart so yeah like some people you know confidence is two different things it's a belief but it's also a personality trait so one of them is variable one of them is a constant you know if you talk to parents who have twins they'll say yeah he's my dad once been confident since the day he was born it's just it's built into who he is and so if it's a trait thing where it's it's literally woven into the fabric of, of who you are and you're always confident that can work but that tends to lean in directionally toward arrogance which you see in a lot of athletes right conor mcgregor you know, in the nineties, all these athletes, but, but the reason that I tend to forgive arrogance, I don't forgive it of my friends or people in my circle, but I forgive it of athletes because confidence is so important for what they do for a living. They have to protect it at all costs. And sometimes that means they have to be boastful and like, you know, talk, talk themselves up a lot. I wonder what errors people get into. They say, okay, you know, I, I want to adopt this mastery in my world. I think we talked about this a little last time, but in sports where, trying to disassociate between here's my process and I've done the best repair. This is the way I'm going about it. And the outcome is variable. So trying not to associate with the potential outcome, what happens. And it's funny because I actually hear people a lot in my world who I think meaningfully want to do, they have their intention is to do that, but they can't help themselves. And it still is like hard. So get a good example. Everyone says, all right, I'm evaluating funder strategy. I'm all about process, not performance. And I say, okay, often I'm like, well, BS. Like, I, I know you've already looked at the chart. You already know the performance. But let's say you did this process. And, and some, I think, really do have that intention. And then they'll buy an investment. And this is a lot of professional um, advisors out there. I don't want to shame you guys, but... Um, I got 10 years of experience here on on chatting with y'all. And then I say, how many of y'all actually use that process, not performance on the sell, right? So they maybe do it on the buy and then the, the outcome, which they really don't control, which is the performance, um, is the only reason they sell. Is there any suggestions you have to people where they're in that next step of like, all right, I'm in this process mentality, this mastery. I want to practice. I want to disassociate with the outcome. I can't help myself, though. What do you say to those people? Or so you know, psychology differentiates different kinds of knowledge. You know, different kinds of ways of learning. And so there's there's what's conceptual knowledge, which is to know something, and procedural knowledge, which is how to do something, right? Knowing and doing. And then there's that bridge. And to your point, a lot of people live here 
but their behavior is not an expression of their beliefs. Like a lot of times people behave in a manner that's very different than, than their core beliefs. Very common, in fact. And the philosopher John Dewey one time wrote, he wrote a book called How We Think. I think it was called How We Think. And in that book, he said, it is brilliant, by the way. He said, we don't think our way into a pattern of living. We live our way into a pattern of thought. Let me translate that. What, what, what that in, in, in common parlance means is a lot of times people think that the way, the way to get better at something or the way to change your life or change your habits is, is it starts in your brain and then you make the decision here and then your life changes. Like, you know, as a man thinking that the way to excellence, the way to get somebody to win, just change their mind. Once they see it, it's an aha moment, everything changes. More often than not, at least half the time, we don't think our way into a behavioral change. We behave our way into a mindset shift. And so that's a long way of saying sort of the Nike, the, 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 the Nike sort of slogan, just, just do it. What I'll often do, and this is not my invention, the, the behavioral psychology sort of laid the groundwork for this, is if you could change a person's behavior, you could change their mind. And so uh, I remember I had a golfer once who was really underperforming relative to his talent. So I went and stayed with him for a few days at his house and I was just watching what he does in a given day. Like in a given off week, he'll wake up at nine, shuffle down the hallway, have breakfast, gets to the driving range right out his back door at 11 a.m., practice, da, da, da. And I thought, okay, so let's change what he does. Let's change just what he's doing. So while I was there, we woke up at 8 a.m. And the first thing he did was not put on his slippers. He put on his sneakers. And instead of walking past his gym on the way to the breakfast table, he went into the gym. And all of a sudden, just by changing that one behavior, the way the dominoes fell in his whole day shifted. And then all of a sudden, practice was better. And then uh, we don't think our way into a pattern of living. We live our way into a pattern of thought. I changed what he was just doing. And all of a sudden, confidence flows from there. Belief in himself, performance started. And he started having two great years on the PJ Tour after that. And so the reality is there's no substitute for doing the right thing. But, but what people don't understand, Jordan Peterson talks about this really, really eloquently. And this is in, in the article I recommended in the last time we chatted called The Mundanity of Excellence. So huge performances, huge results, making a lot of money, winning U.S. Opens in golf, winning NBA championships. Very seldom do those things happen from this epiphany, from this massive shift in your life-changing thing. More often what happens is you make one small change repeated. Right, so at the end, if you make one small change in what you do, we do it every day. You're not making 365 changes. You're making one change 365 times. And then what you start seeing is these incredible wins and these trophies and all these great successes. The podium looks a certain way, but the, but, but the process was just mundane. It was just your small changes repeated, small changes repeated. Change one or two things in your life every day. And you start doing that, of course, here. And all of a sudden, it shows up on the scoreboard. And so what I would encourage people, and this is what Jordan Peterson says quite a bit, pick one thing that's doable. Don't, don't overreach because you're, you're probably not going to wake up at 5 a.m. every day and do a cold plunge. Let's be realistic. I know you want to, but you're probably not going to. Pick one thing that you know you can do and do that every day. Because what happens, you start getting addicted 
to the feeling of, oh, I feel better about myself. Okay, then you add a, you, you stack a second thing on a small thing. Well, that repeated. And all of a sudden, the process of your life looks different. And in aggregate, that's what shows up on the scoreboard. Yeah, I like that. The amount of time, and I'm a terrible surfer, but the amount of times where I've surfed in the morning and have regretted it, or it, it may be zero. I mean, there's probably a couple times we go out there and it's like, well, worst case, it was like a cold punch. Like I just went for a swim and there was no waves and whatever. But I probably in near 100% of the time have felt better. But the amount of times when I wake up and I'm having coffee and I'm like, you know, it looks a little cloudy today or maybe I'll just check some emails. It's funny, the even knowing it, the disassociation between, you know, the habit and putting into practice or putting it into action. I mean, look, we, we all know this with diet and exercise and so many things where we already know the answer. It's just kind of getting it into practice. And by the way, Kobe talks about that or talk, spoke about that when, you know, the Mamba mentality. You had a great article about Kobe, by the way, that we'll post in the show note links listeners. He's someone that embodies a lot of what we talked about today. Yeah. But, but the thing he did is he would never negotiate with himself. Like I, I, I fall into the same trap you do. It's like, yeah, uh, you know, not today that you know, we start having these, right. What makes Kobe Kobe is if he didn't negotiate with him, it's non-negotiable. He wrote a contract. Here's what I'm going to do every day. And there's no negotiating. Like that's the difference maker right there. It's I'm not letting myself off the hook. It's accountability. That's an interesting mindset because there was a recent tweet from a football player. And I may get his name wrong. Russell Okung. It's a picture of him when he was a lineman. It says the journey from being a 330 pound NFL football player to a hundred pounds lighter has been unreal. A new chapter, a new me. And he's like the number one question. And he posts photos of is how do you do it? And he did a 40 day water fast, which I mean, amazing. Right. And listeners, by the way, this is a fun trivia question because everyone that I've asked gets this exceptionally wrong. When you ask what's the world record for, fast. Most people like my, my wife and child, they're like seven days, you know, and it's like, just because you've had food every day for your life doesn't mean that like it's, and then they're like, okay, fine. Like 30. And I was like, the world record's like, it's like a year, you know, where somebody was huge and ended up losing like 400 pounds. But anyway, check out the Guinness record. We'll link it in the show notes. People don't believe me. So listeners go look it up. Anyway, Russell, lost all this because he didn't eat for a month. And people, it's fun to read the comments because people are just like, what? Like, how'd you do it? Like, this is crazy. And he has some really thoughtful answers where, you know, he's basically, one of his quotes, he said, what I wanted to accomplish was bigger than my appetite. And so this mindset that you just talked about is not negotiating with yourself. Because how many of us have been on a run or you're doing a marathon or race and you're just thinking of reasons why you get to quit. Like, like, how can I, you know, what's a good reason to opt out of this? Maybe I'll end this fast early because it's not healthy. Maybe all of a sudden it's not anyway. But I think that mindset of not negotiating is smart. It's probably harder in practice uh, going into it, but powerful concept. Gio, where should we go next? You mentioned Kobe. Should we talk about Kobe and your article or uh, what's something we haven't uh, touched on you want to hit? You know, I was thinking late, uh, recently, you know, all the, we talk about, you know, the markets being an expository mechanism. The idea being whatever your personal makeup as a person, it's going to be exposed, right? So if you're overconfident, that gets exposed. If you're underconfident, that gets exposed. If you're risk averse, that gets exposed. If you, you know, are prone to repeating the same mistake again and again and again, 
the markets will punish the same mistake again and again and again and again. If you lack self-awareness, like whatever your weakness or flaws gets exposed. And so the flip side of that is becoming a better investor can also be the path to becoming a better human being by Abraham Maslow's definition of, you know, of, of being a complete human being, because you have to learn self-awareness. You have to learn to critique yourself. You have to learn intellectual honesty. I was thinking the other day of anyone who follows tennis, when you watch very long sort of rallies, you know, what the data suggests is most, I forget what defines sort of a long rally in terms of the number of, of volleys back and forth. But they're almost always lost on an unforced error, right? So two players are going back and forth and back, and then all of a sudden the crowd is gasping, ah, you know, because it just keeps going. And who almost always loses the rally is the person who capitulates, who panics, who tries to force something. And what you often see with investors, same thing, in a market, may not be taking money away, may, may not be a lot of pain. But it's just uncomfortable because you're flat and we're through five months. We're in June. We haven't generated returns and treasuries are giving five or six percent. And so my, you know, I'm afraid everyone's going to take the money out of my fund and just put it all into treasuries. So all of a sudden you start trying to force a win. And you capitulate. And that's why you see the same traits laterally across domains, whether it's investing or sports. And so, you know, one of the things I'm keeping a close eye on for this particular segment of the, of the market where there just doesn't seem to be a lot of volatility, a lot of opportunity, these are investors who you know, have made a lot of money the last bunch of years. And all of a sudden you start, people, you start seeing people, this reminds you of like late 2017 going to 2018 where the VIX was just when then all of a sudden, you know, February 2018 happened. But this is a time like that. We start seeing the same patterns of behavior, people getting antsy, making mistakes, just like ten, equivalent of a tennis player. So I'm just watching closely to, to see discipline, how many people are committing to their process, detaching from short-term results, you know, and just waiting a little bit and, and, and waiting as a skill. I wonder how hard, you know, if there's any suggestions you have on people detaching from results, because it's so easy when you're playing poker. I was at this angel investing conference last week and sitting down at the poker table. And I mean, poker more than anything for me, investing I can detach from. And it doesn't matter if I'm playing at the $1 table, the $10 table, the $100 table, on and on. You could be playing for any amount of money. It's just as painful for me at the $1 table. But playing there and sitting there and I'm looking at the cards and like, you know, I had a terrible hand, whatever it was like two, seven offsuit and the flop comes and it's, you know, two sevens or two sevens and a two, whatever. And I was like, Oh my God, I cannot believe I didn't stay in that hand. Like we should never stay in that hand. And yet I'm like feeling that regret and that outcome that where I was like, Oh my God, I totally should have made the wrong decision because look, I would, you know, and, and, and then I can catch myself and I'm like, it's so hard mentally. Do you have any suggestions for people as far as, I mean, this is so easy with traders too, the amount of times where it has this same impact where you attach to these outcomes so easily, despite the process, it's, it's, I, as judgmental as I was earlier about people following performance after process, like it's, I feel like it's hard. I love talking to you, man. You, your insights are, are really, are really uh, fantastic. 
you know, every major religious tradition has a prayer component. So let's just use Christianity just as an example, right? It's got this idea of original sin. And so what happens is, is what the, so you go to you know, you say grace for you before dinner and you're practicing gratitude. Thank you for the blessings of this world, right? In the absence of actively praying, what, what Christian tradition says is we tend to regress back to a state of being, which is, you know, sort of the, the sort of a sinful life. And, and the idea of sin, all it means, it's, it's actually an archery term. It means to miss the mark. Like, so to sin in archery is to, to miss the target. To sin in life is to miss the point of life, right? To live in a particular way, right? So the idea being, why do we have to pray all the time? Why do you go to church or, or, or temple or wherever we go to, to practice it? In the absence of actively practicing your beliefs, you tend to fall back into bad habits and patterns. And that's true of psychological attachment. In the absence of actively detaching from the things in your life that are constraining you, whether it's fear or doubt or other people have been in the absence of actively detaching from these things, you're going to live in a psychological strength. You're going to live in a very confined arena of what your total possibilities are. And so the active practice of detaching from these things has to happen at least once a week. Do that. And what fills in that space is psychological freedom. And psychological freedom is the absence of fear. That's how you see things accurately. That's how you lean into moments. That's how you take smart risks. That's how you have courage. There was an NBA coach recently, and we'll have to put it in the show notes links because I can't remember who it was, but they were on a podcast and talking about this detachment. And he said, maybe we should watch film and then have the clips end when the player shoots so we don't see the result of the actual shot. Like I was trying to think of a way like like poker, like the training age should be you play this hand. We're not going to tell you if you won, like your bankroll is going to stay the same. And at the end, we'll show you how it's obviously hard to do. And certainly with investing, it's a similar thing. It's like, you know, you judge the outcome and it's it's even harder in, in a lot of my world. The active traders like Cohen, it's a much shorter, higher frequency, but many of the allocators in my world there's a great quote from Ken French where he's like, it's crazy the inferences people draw from like one, three, five, ten years on like the allocation side, which makes it even harder because that's playing out over time frames that are like, you know, a career or lifetime rather than a day, a week, a month. So I like your concept. I good what my mom used to say. She's like, Good goodbye, little butterfly. Take this thing and just let it let it go away. Let me comment on what you just said. Is this dynamic between process and outcome? The reality is they both matter, right? But the problem is there's such an overamplification on short-term results. That's why all smart people tend to gravitate to process, right? That's why, you know, all the the, the, the tail end of the curve people live in process because they know it's easy to get attached to results. Let me tell you a, a great story. One of the greatest stories or greatest things I've ever seen in my life by Tiger Woods. And like people ask, how did Tiger do? How do you do that body of work? How do you play with that kind of freedom? How do you hit those shots? Like it's, it's unbelievable what he did. The body of work that guy put together—it's incredible. It still defies you know and anything I know about what people are capable of. Tiger Woods was at Firestone Country Club in Ohio playing a Firestone par five. Hits a drive out there, hits a five wood up near the green par five. Right, his third shot, he takes a sixty degree sort of sand wedge and he and he hits it. But the ball doesn't move. The club goes under the ball, and the ball doesn't move. She takes the same club, hits the shot, ball goes under the green, rolls out to about 15 feet, and he makes the putt for par. Here's how he described it. And look, Tiger, what happened on, on the par five? He goes, well, my third shot, I, I couldn't see how much grass was under the ball. I looked, but there's no way to tell. He goes, I executed exactly how I wanted to, just the ball didn't move. 
Because my fourth shot, I picked a spot on the green and I hit my spot exactly where I wanted. I flushed it, but the ball caught a ridge and rolled out. He goes, and then I hit a bad putt that went in. That's so good. Think about this. The third shot, the ball didn't move. He said, that was a great shot. Just the ball didn't move. My fourth shot was a great shot that ended up 15 feet. And everyone thinks those are two bad shots. Then I hit a bad putt that went in. Most people would tell you bad shot, bad shot, good putt. Tiger's telling you great shot, great shot, bad putt that went in. That reveals how crystal clear he is about committing to process and how to evaluate a result. And if everyone's investing or doing anything in life can protect the integrity of the process the way that Tiger Woods did, that's how you move the needle in success. What else is on your mind? Like as far as uh, anything that you're thinking about here this summer that's got you excited, confused, worried, uh, anything that you're working on that you can give us a peek into, but what's, uh, what's on your brain during summertime other than uh, surf camp? <laughs> no, I'm, you know, I wrote those two books and, and, and I've actually you know, started having kids. It's hard to find time to write, but, uh, but I recently, I, I had two books that I was working on before I started I went to work at Point 72. One of them was called Blindsided, and it's sort of the psychological stories for people who are going through life and, and tragedy happens by no fault of their own. Sort of, you know, what happens to people who recover from those as opposed to people who don't, right? So you, you realize when, when bad things happen to people, they go one of three ways. They either shut down and that defines their life, and their life is just, you know, defined by their tragedy. Uh, the middle part of people um, are resilient, right? They cope with it and, and they deal with it effectively, but they, they go through life and it lives with them, but they're, they're, they're resilient. And the third category, sort of consistent with Nathan Taleb's idea of anti-fragile, is people transform a bad experience and, and they make it something great, like Lance Armstrong gets cancer and then, you know, creates Lance Armstrong Foundation and, you know, he's $150 million for cancer research. The woman who created Mothers Against Drunk Driving, right? lost a child to a drunk driver, created an organization to heal. So they, people take bad things and transform them into great things. How do they do that? Like, what's the difference between three kinds of people? And so I interviewed, you know, 50 people. I interviewed 100 people, but I'm using 50 interviews to sort of write the book about what happens when people get blindsided. So when people go through tough, tough things in life, how do you work your way through these things? And the other one's called Rich and Miserable. <laughs> it's called Rich and Miserable. And it's, it's a fascinating thing because, you know, when you grow up, I grew up, you know, you know probably solid middle class, but you look at really wealthy people and you think, oh, they must be so happy. Like, look at their life. It's amazing. Oh, if only I could have this or that. And, you know, now here I am at 50 and, and I've worked with a lot of very successful, very wealthy, uh, very famous, whatever, you know, athletes, investors, so forth. And you realize, like, there's a lot of sadness built into the world of wealth. Like a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression, a lot of drug abuse, a lot of alcoholism. And, and you realize why. Here's why. The American Psychological Association has 50 different divisions, right? There's sports psychology, there's military psychology, there's educational psychology, school psychology. No one's ever written a book to teach wealthy people how to live life because nobody cares. No one has sympathy for rich people. It's like, oh, stop complaining. You're rich. But like, Money does not protect people from sadness. Money doesn't protect you from like, and so, and, 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 you know, whether it's inherited wealth or earned wealth, they're human beings. And so, and so people of wealth, you know, sort of need a playbook too. And so having had a front row seat, I, I myself am not wealthy, but I've had a front row seat to wealth for a lot of years. And there are ways to think about getting through life 
the right way, what, what I'm considering the right way to happiness and fulfillment and joy and meaning and have abundance. See, I don't, I don't vilify wealth. I think abundance is a wonderful thing. Um, I think success is a great thing and everyone should strive for it all the time in, in every area of their life. So I'm, I'm, I'm putting together this, this other book called, called Rich and Miserable. Um, and so I'm doing a lot of writing this summer and I'm, and I'm really loving it. I think you're touching on something that I think is really thoughtful and is a need out there, which is this concept almost of like life school. Um, and, and you're hitting on a particular you know niche of it, but where people hit certain areas that they're A, unprepared for, B, weren't taught in school. It could be the 20-something who's starting to adult and, hey, what's a 401k and how do I adopt this and these challenges, a quarter-life crisis. But obviously, we've seen countless examples of the athletes and celebrities that have graduated particularly to wealth and acclimated poorly. I think the media loves those stories of uh, getting tear- torn down and potential redemption too. But and I want to see it when you uh, when you finish next month and uh, fire it over on this summer sabbatical. We'll see what I uh, would love to read it. Gio, thanks so much for joining us today. Man, pleasure as always. You're, you're such a thoughtful guy. I, I was saying to uh, to your producer earlier, you know, after we spoke maybe a year and a half ago, uh, I don't think I've ever reached back out to an interviewer or to a forum um, to want to engage again. But like, I just, there's something very, very special about your worldview, about your interaction with people, your interpersonal skills. I think you're a real force for good in the marketplace. And, uh, and I really, really love spending time with you. So thank you. Well, thanks, man. We'll do it again uh, sometime soon. Hopefully in person, you can come see us in LA. You got it. Have a wonderful rest of 2023, my friend. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at the mebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.